From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. On January 1st, Turkish President Erdogan announced his appointment of Melih Bulu, a longtime affiliate of the ruling Justice and Development Party, as the new rector of Istanbul's Boğaziçi University, one of the Turkey's most prestigious universities. The appointment trampled a long-standing tradition of electing rectors from within the university. Three days later, thousands of students gathered in front of the university to protest Erdogan's top-down decision aimed at controlling one of the few universities previously able to maintain some degree of institutional autonomy and academic freedom. In spite of government's heavy-handed response, resistance to government's authoritarian assault on academic freedom has continued. To understand the government's actions at Boazici University, the ruling party's strategy for the institutions of higher education, the ramifications of this strategy, as well as the resistance by the students the faculty and the staff of these institutions. Shahram Aghamir spoke with Elif Babul, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Mount Holyoke College, and Aicha Alemdurolo, the Associate Director of the Program on Turkey and Research Scholar at the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. He started by asking Aicha Alemdurolo about the appointment of the new rector, and the actions taken by the students and the faculty of the university in opposing this appointment. The president appointed a new rector to the Bozic University in the early hours of the New Year's Day, the January 1st. And then what happened is that uh, the following Monday, this was Friday, the following Monday, students gathered in front of Bozic University and they were faced with police blockade. And their demands were actually for the president to reverse this decision, to basically not appoint Mr. Bulu, this new rector, to the university. And they ask also to bring back the elections in universities, because universities in Turkey used to have a say in the election of their rectors until very recently, until 2016. This was not like a super democratic process, but at least the faculty, not the, all the stakeholders in the university, but just the faculty was able to vote for their next rector. And then the university will send the list of people who ran in the elections according to their ranking in the election result to the Council of Higher Education. And then Council of Education used to send these names to the president and then the president would appoint. The president has always been appointing university rectors in Turkey. But before 2016, universities had a say in who the rector will be. So the students basically asked to bring back the system and make it more democratic so that the university stakeholders could, I mean, the students and faculty and even staff could vote for rector. They started with two demands, but then later when their friends were arrested and detained, they also asked for the release of their friends. 
currently we have seven people who are being tried for inciting hatred in society. These uh, students were part of the Bozici protest and they were detained and then they were given house arrest and some of them were actually in jail. I think there were two that were released yesterday. Now they're being tried, but I think no one is jailed. If I'm mistaken, Elif, please correct me. So those were the basically three demands. Uh, let's not have this rector, let's bring back the elections, and let's not put uh, students uh, in prison. Those were the three demands. Elif, clearly the, the government and its security forces were prepared for a reaction or response by the uh, faculty and students of the university. What measures have the government and its security forces taken to quell the protest? There has been heavy police presence on campus. Bozici is, most of the university campuses in Turkey are, in order for the police to enter into the campuses, they have to get the permission from the rector, from the president. And in the past, there has been events when the presidents, the rectors have allowed the police to come into the campus. And that has caused a huge uproar among the students. I'm talking about events 10 years ago or past events. So there has been police presence on campus before, of course, but it is something that needs the permission of of the rector. So it's not a straightforward thing that happens. In this case, uh, it I think first started with police presence outside of, of the campus to make sure that students from other colleges, from other universities or other supporters are not going to hold press releases or demonstrations outside of the campus. Uh, But then quickly the police presence actually moved inside the campus as well. And the government also used the current situation with the COVID um, infection rates and the sort of curfew, the countrywide curfew, as a further excuse to criminalize and clamp down on the protesters. They used the uh, infection rates as an excuse to say that you cannot do protests or demonstrations because of public health reasons and used police to basically intervene in those. Alif, unsurprisingly, Turkish President Erdogan resorted to the uh, term terrorism once again. Uh, He characterized the protesters as a naive bunch mobilized by provocateurs tied to uh, terrorist organizations. Concurrently, the pro-government pundits and media attacked Boğaziçi by characterizing it as an elitist institution. These are their words, uh, suggesting that it is anything but democratic. Can you talk about the narrative promoted by the government and its supporters? And how would you respond to the charges of terrorism and elitism? Terrorism has been a very useful tool and one that is very swiftly, quickly deployed to condemn any kind of opposition to the current government. So we see time and again different kinds of groups who raise their voices against government actions to be labeled as terrorists. So this wasn't something out of the ordinary, what happened to Boazici students and the faculty. They were quickly labeled as terrorists. And in the student's case, particularly in the student's case, they were labeled as young people who were sort of tricked into protesting by more experienced groups with kind of alternative 
intentions. And one of the things that happened was that the government's representatives, I think, from the police, from the part of the police, they called the parents of some of the students to ask them to convince their children to stop protesting. When you take that into consideration, it's basically thinking that the students are not acting according to their own will. They're being tricked into protesting and behaving as such and basically not taking them as interlocutors, as direct interlocutors, but instead calling their parents to ask them to control their children. So that is very much an example of how the government approaches the students, particularly as protesters. And on the part of the the faculty, one of the things that happened was that the appointed director has been arguing that it's not the entire faculty that's actually against the rector and the appointment of the rector. It's a small group within the faculty that is sort of exerting pressure over the rest of the faculty to not recognize director. That's not factually correct, is it? No, that is not correct at all. No, not at all. Absolutely not. But that's the way in which they've been framing it. And that's the way that they've been servicing it to the pro-government media to basically reframe the events incorrectly. And one of the faculty members particularly was singled out because she is the spouse of the jailed business person, Osman Kabbalah who is being charged with orchestrating the 2016 coup. First, he was charged with orchestrating the Gezi events. And then because it was not possible to prove the charges, they constantly keep changing the charges because there's really no evidence to support the charges that they're making against him. But he's still jailed. He's been jailed for over a year, perhaps two years. I ch- Correct me if I'm wrong. So one of the faculty members who's protesting is his spouse. So the government singled out her and said that it's the faculty like her. Again, this is sort of like the way in which they frame any kind of protesters as terrorists by finding these links to alleged people who are suspicious or suspect and then labeling the entire group as somehow sort of anti-system, anti-national in order to criminalize and delegitimize the demands that are voiced. Aisha, what would you add? This is like a basic strategy of the government that Elif is talking about. It's really to declare a group as terrorist, as one thing, trying to disunite the country, all sorts of discourses that comes with that kind of pointing at someone as a terrorist. And they basically want to show that their actions are legitimate because who they are dealing with are these terrorists who are trying to disunite the country or they are under the effect of some ill-willed group. So this is like a basic discursive strategy that we have been seeing over and over. I mean, it's uh, really a future of populism, the polarization in the country, and it works in various ways. I mean, we know that these students are not terrorists. We know that Osman Kavala, who has been in jail, as Elif said, for now, I think actually maybe three years, almost three years, he's not a terrorist, but it works. I mean, about 50% of the population do not hear the other side of the story. So the media is really under the control of the government. And there's a lot of pressure on people who are trying to 
traverse these boundaries, try to cross these boundaries and speak to various constituencies. For instance, like a very recent case, Omar Farouk Gargarlioglu is an MP from the pro-Kurdish left-leaning HDP, who was also in the circles of the Islamist, political Islamist movement. So in a way, has interlocutors and various groups in the society and he's working for human rights and now we see like very recently yesterday he was stripped off his uh, parliament seat for retweeting for a retweet basically you know <laughs> i mean we hmm. see this over and over the government is really trying to divide the society and that's the only way they could run the show because we see that their electoral support is decreasing day by day, and these are basically easy tools to change the real agenda. I mean, Turkey is now in the middle of a serious economic uh, crisis. We have been in war in Syria. There's a lot going on, and yet when you look at the pro-government media, just criminalizing students, they're dealing with university elections, you know, that sort of a thing. This is really a strategy of governing the country. I would add something to that in terms of what it means to label terrorism your opponents, right? So one of the things that happens when you label your opponents coming from anywhere as terrorists is that you refuse to engage them politically. It is basically a way of throwing people outside of the political system. Yesterday, as Aicha said, Omar Farouk Yargerlioğlu, an MP, was stripped of its MP status. He was, again, illegally, with baseless claims, charged with for retweeting a news item that is still actually up on the uh, news website. He just retweeted it. And because of that, he was charged with aiding and abetting to terrorism. And he was given an over one year prison sentence. But that prison sentence had come to a halt because he was elected as an MP. And hmm. now what the parliament did was that it stripped Omar Farouk of the protections that an MP has by stripping him of his title, and which means that he can now go to jail. So what happens is that you're literally throwing an MP whom you have to engage with politically in the National Assembly into jail where, where you don't have to deal with him anymore and the opposition that he's bringing to the table. In addition to that, yesterday, the state attorney in Turkey filed charges against the party that Omar Faruk Yagerlioğlu belongs to, HDP, the Kurdish left-leaning political party, to shut down the party. And this is going to be, I don't know, the fifth party or the sixth party in the, in the same sort of political strand that was got shut by the government. This is the third largest political party that is represented in the National Assembly right now. So it does have a large constituency. It got over six million votes in the national elections. And by shutting down that political party, what you're doing is that you're refusing to engage with them politically. You're refusing to engage with the challenges, the opposition that it's bringing to the table. So what the government and not just AKP, but also the ally of AKP, MHP, which is the Nationalist Action Party, the far-right ultranationalist party in Turkey, what they're trying to do is that they're trying to craft the political sphere in a way that would serve them in the next elections by basically taking down their opponents who can challenge them in those elections. And that election is in two years from now, isn't it? In 2023? Well, yes. Aisha? 
this is an interesting thing. I mean, we don't know if the party will eventually shut down, but even just starting this criminal court case against the party to be shut down is really, again, going back to what I've said before, is really trying to make sure that those different groups in the society do not support each other. Because what we have seen in 2019 local elections, there was a informal alliance between the main opposition party and the HDP, the one that they're trying to close down. And after a quarter of a century, AKP has been governing in the large cities, the metropolitan cities like Ankara and Istanbul. And with this alliance between the main opposition party and HDP and a smaller nationalist party, they were able to take over the municipalities. So I think in running towards to the 90, you know, to 2023 elections, the general elections, the government and its uh, smaller coalition partner, the ultranationalist party, they're trying to make sure that this opposition bloc doesn't form again. Because what happens is that when you target a party as a, with terrorism charges, the other parties may become not that enthusiastic to have that election coalition with the HDP. So they're really trying to divide the opposition as well. I mean, or preventing the opposition from getting together to run against the government and the government coalition. They may end up not closing the HDP, but even just charging it with terrorism will help the AKP consolidate its electoral support. Well, intimidation tactics, and clearly the the ruling Justice and Development Party does not wish to see a rerun of what happened in Istanbul two years ago, where they lost the mayorship of the city, and that was a huge loss for the ruling coalition. As a result of what you said, the fact that these opposition groups actually coalesced in some sort of a front or quasi-coalition. In your article which is entitled Boğaziçi Resists Authoritarian Control of the Academy in Turkey, co-authored by the both of you, you write that Boğaziçi has a distinctive history and reputation. Elif, can you give us a brief history of the university which originally opened its doors to students in 1863 as the oldest American college outside of the United States and operated under the name Robert College till 1971, Also, the university is well known for its high academic standards. What are some of these distinct features in terms of its governance structure that are threatened by an authoritarian intervention aiming at establishing a top-down structure of governance? Bosti shares on paper the legal status of the rest of the universities in Turkey, but it has a particular reputation and it also has particular um, traditions of governance. So it has a particular reputation that is tied to its history, which, as you said, dates back to Robert College, which was the first American college that was established outside of the United States, and it was founded in 1863. And for more than 100 years, it served as as an institution of higher learning for men, and the language of instruction was English, and it mostly attracted the non-Muslim minorities 
students from non-Muslim minorities in the Istanbul Ottoman Empire, as well as foreign nationals living under the empire. And then in 1971, after one of the coups that happened in Turkey, it was transferred to the state all of its property, all of its personnel, everything was transferred to the state and Robert College was re-established as Boğaziçi University, as a public university. And it is one of the few public universities that conducts instruction in English language, which is a matter of status. And it is a small university when you compare it to other public universities. It's actually a very small university, which means that it is pretty selective and it is intentionally so it's kept as a small university it doesn't have a law school for instance it doesn't have medical schools for instance in some other public universities those are some of the schools that that exist but Boziçi doesn't have those uh, it has a particular niche that it excels at and it focuses in those areas in the countrywide university entrance exams it is preferred by um, students who are at the very top, who get the top marks in the nationwide university entrance exam. So it gets very, very good students. And it also doesn't have a lot of postgraduate programs, uh, MA, particularly PhD programs. And the underlying implicit sort of thought with that is that it wants to focus its attention and its energy at something that it believes it does the best, which is undergraduate education, with the hope that the undergraduates, um, uh, if they want to continue their education, will go abroad to get PhDs or postgraduate degrees elsewhere and sort of continue their careers as such. So this is the reputation of Boaz University. When we think about the tradition, the governmental tradition of the university, it has a very egalitarian sort of structure to it. And that is something that is passed upon the newer generation of faculty and administrators from the former ones. So it is something that the faculty who start teaching at Boazic University get inculcated in, and then they kind of like pass this on to the next generation. There are obviously particular positions such as the chairs of the department and the chairs of the, the schools, such as the School of Social Sciences, which grant MA degrees, for instance. So there, there is a hierarchical on paper structure, institutionalization, but it doesn't really determine the kind of interactions that take place in the governmental structures at Boston University. There's a big faculty senate where everything gets discussed. And when a program gets established, it's extensively discussed in many different committees. And then most of the decisions in the university are taken with consensus. That's what it strives for. So it also prides itself on these kind of governmental mechanisms that are not necessarily codified by its legal status, but that is passed on through the culture of teaching at Boazici or serving at Boazici. Aisha, let's place the events at Boazici University in a broader context. Since early 2016, academic institutions in Turkey have been subject to a sustained state crackdown that appears to be unprecedented in the history of Turkish Republic, presumably not even under the military junta that came to power in 1980 did we witness such things. I don't know what the pertinent figures are today, but for a period of uh, two years, 
between uh, 2016 and 2018, it was reported that more than 6,000 academics and upward of 1,400 administrative staff from 122 universities were purged, and hundreds of academics were prosecuted. In addition to that, 15 private universities were shut down. Can you talk about this context and the campaign of state repression as well as its impact on higher education and critical thinking in Turkey? You're very right in saying that since 2016, what we're witnessing is an unprecedented repression effort to take over the control of universities. I mean, in Turkey, when you look at it historically, the repression or the effort to sort of control universities go together very much with what is happening in the country politically. We have seen after the 1960 coup, 1971 uh, military intervention, and then in 1980 military coup again, we see the academic freedoms are being uh, restricted. But we have never seen this many people, this many faculty members being purged. We have not seen this many students tried in the courts or put in prison. We don't know the exact numbers, but there are thousands of students in jail at the moment. Very much seen like numbers like 70,000, but I looked into it a little bit. Some people who are put in jail become students afterwards, but many of them are just actually university students. This got really worse in 2016 with the failed coup attempt, but we have been seeing it since early 2010. We had the protest in Middle East Technical University where I graduated from. There were widespread student protests that many students were put in prison. I think their cases were resolved four years after the events and many of them got actual prison sentences, although they have been kept in prison for some time. So we have been seeing this really getting much more stronger uh, will by the government to, to control universities. And what is also happening is that I just actually recently gave a talk about this. What is interesting in the case of Turkey is that this authoritarianism or Turkey's fall into this authoritarian regime overlaps with the expansion of higher education in Turkey. So on the one hand, the government is trying to control the universities like Boazici, uh, where there is faculty who are obviously critical of what has been happening in the country. But there's also this move towards opening new universities and appointing new faculty. And this is like a very fundamental change of the university context in Turkey. And what we are seeing is that what comes with this striking expansion is a serious drop in the quality of education. We see a serious drop in the academic freedoms. We see a serious drop in institutional autonomy. Part of this expansion is very much about the privatization of education, but it's not only the private universities. The government also invested through its, through big business groups, through pro-government, non-profit foundations. There has been a lot of expansion in the private sector as well. But again, who gets to start a university is very much a, a political decision again. And the Council of Higher Education, which was founded in following the 1980 coup, has been 
very instrumental to the current government's way of regulating universities. And what is also interesting historically is that when the AKP came to power, one of the things that they said was that they're going to shut down the Council of Higher Education or change its role in the Turkish university system, that they will bring it more as a institution for coordinating universities rather than controlling universities. But what we have seen is that the council became really the major mechanism in how they are controlling, trying to take over the university administrations. I should also add uh, in relation to the Boazici case, but also in relation to other universities, is that we are seeing more and more that the AKP is appointing political figures to these um, university positions, like in the case of Mr. Bulu, the new rector of Boazici, he has been a, a member of the governing party. He ran and lost in 2015 elections. And I don't know to what extent this is true, but I've definitely seen various reporting on his role in the AKP's election campaigns and Twitter, where he was basically organizing the social media efforts of the party. And we have seen that, for instance, uh, last year, Twitter closed down various accounts that are related, uh, that are basically fraud accounts. They're not real accounts. It's kind of a propaganda machine of the party. And there is reporting about how this uh, new president of the university was actually also playing a major role in that effort. And as I said, Bozic is not the only one. I mean, we have seen various uh, former AKP parliamentarians being appointed as rectors of universities. And one of the things that is wrong about this is uh, in the law, university administrators cannot be members of political parties. Faculty can be a member of a political party, but the deans, uh, the director of institutes, or as I said, the president, cannot have a party affiliation. So clearly what they're doing is against the law. And all these different illegal, I would say, appointments are to make sure that universities are basically not causing trouble to the government, but also promoting its political Hmm. agenda, as well as, uh, as I said, educational agenda. And that's Shahram Aghamir, speaking with Aicha Alamdurulu, the Associate Director of the Program on Turkey and Research Scholar at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, at Stanford University about the Turkish government's assault on institutions of higher education. We're also speaking with Elif Babul, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Mount Holyoke College. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Let's discuss the reasons behind Mr. Erdogan's recent decision concerning Boazici University. He directly appointed a new rector at the university and issued a decree at midnight 
on February 5th to establish two schools at the university, clearly with the intention of appointing pro-government faculty in order to pack the university. In the Merip article, your explanation for these decisions is twofold. First, you point out Mr. Erdogan's strategy of bringing autonomous institutions to heal, to suppress dissent, and the desire by his ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, to attain, and this is important, cultural hegemony by cultivating, quote-unquote, homegrown and national youth, and these are Mr. Erdogan's words, who are the youth who are staunchly pious and politically obedient, yet highly educated. You add the Gezi Park protest against the policies of ruling AKP in 2013 gave new urgency to this strategy. Elif, can you elaborate on your explanation? It's actually a very interesting phenomenon, this idea of homegrown national youth. In Turkish, it's yerli ve milli gençlik. That's actually something that Erdogan has been talking about since the 2010s, you know, the early 2010s. And Erdogan has been opposing this figure of homegrown youth to other politically charged figures of youth that were prominent in the public sphere in Turkey. So we had the the Kurdish youth, for instance, we, we have the Kurdish youth that's very visible as a very visible figure of the Kurdish movement, politically active with a high level of political consciousness, engagement. And then actually, very, very interestingly, Erdogan also used the same term at the speech that he gave after Armenian journalist Ranting's assassination by a young person, Ogun Samast. And he said in his speech afterwards, that's not the kind of youth that AKP wants. Now, of course, this was a long time ago. This is 2005, where AKP was not necessarily associated with the kind of populist authoritarianism that it is exhibiting today. So I think this makes me think that this was a project that the AKP had for a long time, this kind of youth to fuel its projects for the transformation of Turkey, of the country. But when we look at its latest connotations, particularly during the 2013 Gezi protests, when we talk about Gezi protests, we were talking about um, protests, nationwide protests that were sparked across the country by the sudden declaration of one of the last remaining urban green spaces in Istanbul, Gezi Park, that it was going to be transformed into these sort of, I guess, shopping mall versus, uh, slash hotel slash conference center privatized space that was going to be modeled uh, on the previous army barracks that used to exist there in the Ottoman times. And that became a moment where different constituents in Turkey became unified under um, their opposition to the project. So people who were involved in urban space issues, like architects and um, urban planners who are active in uh, urban planning issues, and at the same time environmentalists, and at the same time youth who were active in various different political projects, they were unified under their opposition to um, this project, which became emblematic of their opposition against the government's increasing anti-democratic decision-making process. And youth was very active, very visible. Gezi protests were very visibly marked as youth protests. So this idea of homegrown national youth 
and in the article we explain it, uh, we quote Erdogan, who explains this homegrown national youth as youth with faith in his heart, the Quran and computer in his hands, science in his mind, and a calling towards God. Um, so this sort of like particular imaginary of the youth that was voiced in opposition to the kind of youth that was portrayed in the pro-government media as destructive and kind of like throwing stones and burning places, right? So it became really, really emphasized during that period. And the same image was revoked again and again. Most notably, there was a time in 2018 when a group of Bozici students reacted against another group of Bozici students who staged uh, support to the government's incursion into Afrin in Syria. Uh, so they protested this support and that drew Erdogan's again reaction where he invoked the same image of homegrown national youth who were trying to organize this event to support the government's incursion in Afrin and the terrorist youth or the traitor youth who are trying to oppose to that. And there are different ways in which this can be translated. National youth versus anti-national youth, elite youth versus the real youth that belongs to the real people. Um, so it is a very useful tool to mark Erdogan's and AKP's project to sort of divide the country into those that are with us versus those that are against us, and those that are with us being the real people, the real representatives of the larger groups of people, the people, the society in Turkey, as opposed to the elites, the minority, who don't have the country's best interests in mind. This has been a very useful rhetorical tool in Erdogan's fight to establish cultural hegemony in the country. The thing that is, I think, interesting to me in this definition of the homegrown national youth is that this youth is, on the one hand, politically compliant and nationalistic and religiously pious and everything. But at the same time, there's a strong emphasis on technological capabilities of this youth as well. So this youth is very educated in Erdogan's mind. The way in which he describes it is that this youth is technically capable. It has this information and knowledge, particularly and specifically in these sort of like scientific and economic technical matters, which are regarded as the important matters to take country forward, as opposed to critical thinking and questioning and opposition, the kinds of things that we would associate with humanities and perhaps social sciences, a particular strain of social sciences are either criminalized or being downplayed, whereas this technical know-how and scientific advancement is actually being promoted as things that can be put into use for, for furthering national interests, which is what the AKP is asking the youth to do. Based on what Elif just said, and given that more than half of the Turkish population is under 30 years old, I think it's important to visit your other article in Merip entitled The AKP's Problem with Youth that was published in 2018. You write that one of the most significant obstacles to the AKP fully realizing its hegemonic objectives in Turkey is the widespread disaffection of Turkish youth with the AKP. I must add that the problem becomes more evident when one realizes that an estimated 6 million new voters will take part in the national elections of 2023, as we just discussed. You also discuss how government-funded religious Imam Hatib 
schools have expanded considerably across Turkey since the Justice and Development Party came to power. And these are secondary schools, if you like. You view this expansion as a systemic effort to shape and control youth through amicable means. Can you tell us more about these schools and their significance in the mid- and long-term strategy of the Justice and Development Party? Yes, so in that article that you refer to, I had the question of when you look around in Turkey and when you follow like what the AKP is trying to do, not only in terms of the universities, but also in the education system with the new nonprofit organizations that are basically mushrooming. There are all these new youth organizations that are funded by either the party or the government agents who ask the questions like, what is going on? Why, why is there so much attention, so much interest in youth? What is this problem? Let's talk about it. And what was interesting is that when you look at the numbers in terms of Imam Hatip schools that you refer to, these are religious schools at the middle school and high school level. They have a very long history in Turkey. They were shut down in the early Republican era. They were reintroduced and various governments, both right and left, somehow supported these, I mean, opened these schools during their government's period. But since 2002, since the AKP came to govern the country, it's striking growth in the number of these schools. I will just briefly give you the numbers. In 2002, we had about 400 of these Imam Hatip schools. And in 2018 or so, when I looked at it, there were over 4,000. And the number of students also increased by a lot. I mean, there, we had some tens of thousands in, back in 2002. When we came to 2018, there were over 1 million. So why is the case? Why the governments put so much effort and investment in these schools? It's not only they're opening new schools, what they did is to change, to transform the already existing schools into Imam Hatip schools. So it's really like Imam Hatips are the education model for this government. Ideologically, it's what Elif explained. It's really to make sure that Turkey's youth is raised to, to become religious on the one hand, right? Nationalist, as well as educated. And when you look at the Islamist thinking in Turkey and elsewhere, it's very much this idea that the West is basically eroding our character, our national, our religious character, our culture. So what we need to do is make sure that we raise our kids with the knowledge of religion, with the faith in the nation, that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that we should just give them those values, but also we have to make sure that they're educated, that they get the latest technological sort of advancements and no other fields. I think what this is what President Erdogan himself was brought up with. This is what the Islamist ideology in Turkey has been following. And it's not the just the Islamist ideology. When you look at the early discussions of nationalism in Turkey, for instance, in, in a figure like Ziya Gökay, the idea was our nationalism should protect the culture, but we should westernize, but while we're protecting our culture. So this idea of protecting the national religious culture while 
modernizing has been the main tenant of these uh, more conservative ideology in Turkey. And they were brought up with this kind of ideology in the 70s. I mean, Erdogan himself, his close political colleagues and in the party. But now we're in the 21st century and they're still trying to revive this idea and execute this idea by taking control of the universities, by changing the education system. And most youth are not finding much value to this kind of, I mean, the life is changing, there's technology, there's social media. It's hard to restrict their interest into religion. There's so much going on. And there, we see an important trend in Turkey where even the young people from conservative families are distancing themselves from institutional religion. This is clearly not working, but yet we see the government over and over trying to establish this kind of national educational ideology. But as you said, there are six million new people, new voters who will be voting in 2023. And while the government is trying to attract them to the party in various ways, not just the ideology, but they're also the patronage system, who gets to find a job in, in a ministry or the municipality, Supporting this ideology is also a political patronage system that many youth find attractive to, to be able to find jobs, basically. But there's also a majority of young people who are growing more and more distant to the party and opposing the party. So I don't think this way of repression, this way of imposing religion, a certain interpretation of religion, would work for young people. And you write that Turkey is also facing an unprecedented brain drain. Public opinion polls show a large majority of youth are disillusioned about the country's direction under the leadership of Mr. Erdogan. More than three out of four young people between the ages of 18 and 29 wish to leave Turkey for a better future. And remarkably, I also read that 47% of AKP voters expressed their desire to live abroad in Western countries. Can you break it down for us? What are the key issues in this push for migration? And this is very different from early 2000s when Turks were actually coming back to the country as opposed to leaving the country, right? Is that correct? Yes, it is very correct, actually. I don't think we have data on how many people returned the country in the early 2000s, but I remember it was very attractive to go back to Turkey and live in Istanbul, get a job in one of the new colleges. It was an attractive option for many of us uh, in the early 2000s. But as you said, more and more people, young people, are wanting to leave the country. And that is very understandable, right? On the one hand, there is this repression. People are not free to express themselves. I mean, even a tweet can get you into police investigation. So there's this very repressive environment. People are scared, basically, from university professors to young people to everyone, basically, in the country. But there's also... The economy is not that great. The unemployment has really increased. I mean, in 2018, Turkish lira lost 30% of its value. And with that, we have seen many businesses being closed down and there are basically no jobs. And it's not just the economy, right? When you expand your higher education this much from 70 colleges in 2000s to 
200s and the number of students really increased, the number of university students reading is the number of people who are graduating from the university really increased by a lot. And if you don't create jobs for these people, you end up with 30, 35% youth unemployment, even more. I mean, these are the basically numbers that we hear from the official numbers, probably the real numbers is much higher. People cannot find jobs together with no jobs and repression. What do people do? I mean, the ones who could leave, they leave. The ones who are there are are basically not able to to get a livelihood. I mean, I think this will be a big problem for the AKP. It is still, but I think as we approach to 2023, this will be one of the main problems. Can I add something? Yes, please. Uh, so one of the things that may be, I don't know, ironic, <laughs> interesting, is that the youth that is now in their, I guess, 30s and perhaps a little younger, is that some of the youth that we're talking about were also brought up during the time that we may consider as the liberalist period of AKP. So it may be one of the reasons why they are, in addition to all of the things that Aicha uh, already mentioned, it may be also one of the reasons why AKP is having such a difficult time attracting this youth to its current ideology. So when we think about the early 2000s, the more sort of like liberal uh, period of AKP, which was marked by various openings, the rejuvenation of the countries, the Turkey's engagement with the European Union, the revitalization of the accession process, reforms that are taking place in a lot of places, the Kurdish opening, the other kinds of more liberal policies that AKP was putting out in order to use them, in order to strategically make use of them in its fight against the then established secularist state apparatus. One thing that I often think about when I look back in those days that is very much related to the youth experience was that there was an intensification of the Erasmus programs, for instance. And the Erasmus programs were these student exchange programs that allowed university students in Turkey to go and study for a semester or for a year in somewhere in Europe, vice versa. And then there were other kinds of similar experiences, opportunities that that the youth who grew up in early 2000s experienced, the public debate, the, the space of public debate suddenly expanded. We were able to talk about things like the peace process with Kurds. And there, there was a, a time where we talked about openly about Armenian genocide, other kinds of historical traumas or historical taboos in the Turkish nation state. And so we're talking about a youth who's now in their mid-20s and early 30s, perhaps, who basically experienced that time, that period of time that was also under AKP rule. So their experience of what can be said in the public sphere, what are the limits of one's mobility, what are the extent of one's access to different kinds of technological resources or social resources is actually pretty different. So it adds to our understanding of why the youth is actually reacting so negatively to the current uh, repressionist policies of the AKP when we take that period into consideration as well, which was starkly opposite to the space where youth was was living in. It must be also the deteriorating 
conditions of the economy as well, right? Totally, I mean, yes, that's, yes, you know, absolutely. I mean, yes. this has that, changed. That is very much yes. tied to that, of course. That yeah. was, we're also talking about a time when foreign investment was pouring right. into the country. So there was a general increase in wealth, which had, of course, a huge uh, impact on the consumption abilities of youth, the available products that are in the market. So all of that uh, shaped youth experience in the early 2000s until mid-2010 or so, in a very specific way that is in stark opposition to what's going on right now. This issue of pious, homegrown, and national youth, as Erdogan characterizes it, reminds me of the events that unfolded in Iran in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution. In a top-down process, the state pursued a concerted strategy to Islamize the nation, state apparatus, public space and individual behavior with the goal of creating, quote-unquote, an Islamic man. On the university campuses, a situation of dual power had emerged at that time. Students were in control of the classroom, the physical space, and campus politics. And the state, on the other hand, was the owner and administrator at the top. The populist regime at the time did not tolerate this state of dual power, and in April 1980, the regime's armed gangs attacked three campuses. Within the next few days, the gangs killed at least 24 students and wounded hundreds. Subsequently, the regime shut down all universities for nearly three years, and all students, faculty, and staff considered disloyal to the Islamic State, they were purged. Turkey in 2021 is clearly not post-revolutionary Iran of 1980, but one wonders how far AKP's quest for hegemony can go. Can either one of you chime in on that? I think I think it's really, really interesting to think of Turkey in connection with uh, Iran as well as in Egypt. This is something that we have been, especially the secularist part of the uh, groups in the society have been saying, oh, Turkey will become an Iran with this government, so and so. I don't think any country can become another country, but... I think when we look at what is really happening in these institutions, uh, in the schools, in the in various institutions in the country, um, you see that there is a very clear attempt to change the culture of the of the country, make it so that it's more more in line with a, an interpretation of Islam that this government wants to put forward. I want to be optimistic and say that, you know, when this government becomes weaker, many people, I think, seem to be loyal to this government because there's this patronage system, economic interests and all that. So when the government becomes weaker, people will be able to, you know, shift their political loyalty. So the system that they try to establish will not achieve that logical conclusion that some people worry about, which is like, you know, Turkey becoming a Islamic state. But the other thing is clearly the institutions have been transformed in Turkey. They are functioning now in accordance with values of political compliance and loyalty to this government. So I'm not sure what the damage is, to be honest. I mean, we see the damage, but we don't know whether we could restore these institutions when the AKP is not there anymore. Aisha Alamdurulu is the Associate Director of the Program on Turkey and Research Scholar 
at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. She's a political sociologist focusing on social and political inequality and change in Turkey and the Middle East. Elif Babul is assistant professor of anthropology at Mount Holyoke College. You may read their article, Boazeci Resists, Authoritarian Control of the Academy in Turkey, on the website of Middle East Research and Information Project, merip.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Please join us next week for the second part of the conversation about the Turkish government's assault on institutions of higher education. Geçmiş tükendi, ne yarınlar, hayat yeniler bizleri. Geçse de yolumuz bozkırlardan, denizlere çıkar sokaklar. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Yollardan sonra yeniden yan yana